there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I do want to say that God knows your deepest desires. I know that you wouldn't be in a singles group if you weren't single. And you wouldn't be in a singles group, I don't suppose. You might uh, try to avoid it like the plague, unless you had some interest in, a pos in the possibility of marriage. And it is a legitimate, proper, normal human desire. And not for one moment do I want to be understood as knocking the idea of marriage or knocking the idea that, of having a singles group, because it seems perfectly logical to me that God would provide the right mate for you out of a group like this. I read somewhere that before the bicycle was invented, any man in England married a woman within five miles of his home. After the bicycle was invented, it was increased to 25 miles. But of course now, all of you have been all over the world. And it becomes very, very complicated. And you have this idea that there are at least 950 different people out there that might make a potential spouse and you don't have any way in the world of knowing how to narrow it down. God is faithful. God is not different now than he was back when Abraham's servant had to go out and find a wife for Isaac. Do you remember what that servant did? He did the two crucial things. When he went to find a wife for Isaac, he chose the place where women could be observed with propriety. And that happened to be the village well. All the girls came with their water pots, and a man could stand at a distance and observe them. And what did he see? Well, he picked out a beautiful woman. And then he noticed that she not only was beautiful, but she was hardworking. She offered to give him some water, and then she offered to water his camels. And he had 10 camels with him. I don't know how many gallons a camel can drink, but that was a lot of work for that lady. He made a judgment. She's a beautiful woman. She's a gracious woman. She's a hardworking woman. Why shouldn't she be the right one? What is it that you're looking for? When Solzhenitsyn was in the labor camp, he prayed this prayer. How simple for me to live with you, O Lord. How easy to believe in you. When in confusion my soul bears itself or bends, when the most wise can see no further than this night and do not know what tomorrow brings, you fill me with the clear certainty that you exist and that you watch to see that all the paths of righteousness be not closed. From the heights of worldly glory, I am astonished by the path through despair that you have provided me, this path from which I have been worthy enough to reflect your radiance to men. All that I will yet reflect you will grant me, and for that which I will not succeed in reflecting, you have appointed others. Can you think of a worse place to be than in a labor camp in Russia? And yet he says, how simple for me to live with you, O Lord. 
And I'm here to testify today that I do believe with all my heart that the will of God is simple. It is not by any means always easy. But God does know how to guide a man or a woman who is honest and earnest about doing his will. And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, there are three conditions. It's interesting that he gave us the most difficult of all right up front. Do you want to be my disciple? You don't have to be, but if you want to be, he says, you must give up your right to yourself. Don't even think of getting married unless you're prepared to give up your right to yourself, because that certainly is one of the primary conditions. And there's a lot of similarities between the awesome privilege and responsibility of marriage and the awesome privilege and responsibility of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Did the disciples have any idea what they were getting into when they followed Jesus? He found them mending their nets and he said, follow me. And they left their nets and they followed him. It was that simple. And when the bride walks down the aisle, she doesn't know what's in store for her. She may have known this man for years. She may think he's the most wonderful prize package in the whole world. But there are going to be some surprises, probably within 24 hours. <laughs> Take it from me. I've been married to three different men, very, very different men. And I've had to learn how to submit to three very different men, different personalities. But I'm here to make as clear and as simple as I possibly can that God does know how to lead you in this very scary and seemingly impossible choice of the right wife. And of course, I'm speaking to you men. It is not us women. It is not we women who are supposed to be doing the initiating. It is perfectly clear in the scripture that the man is meant to be the initiator, the woman is meant to be the responder. So I have a very different message for men than I have for women. But here are some things which are straightforward in the scripture that apply, I believe, to singles as much as to anyone else. The first one is that we must understand our relative position in God's economy. Men are the initiators because they stand in the place of Christ in marriage. Women are the responder because we have the position of being like the bride of Christ. There has to be respect and honor. And I would assume that in a group of Christian young people like this, you know that. Obedience, first to God and then to any authority that he places over us. But then the Lord gets right down to the nitty-gritty and he says, Men are to pray in all the churches without resentment or doubt. 1 Timothy 2.8. Women, he says, are to be dressed quietly. Their demeanor is to be modest, serious, and they are to learn quietly and humbly. Think about these scriptural injunctions. Number six, the Bible says that there is to be no physical contact. Paul said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And when Jim Elliott told me back in 1948, just before I graduated from college, that he was in love with me, I almost died, almost dropped right through the sidewalk at the surprise. But he then followed that with an almost worse announcement that he thought perhaps God was asking him to remain single, maybe for the rest of his life. 
because he was going into pioneer missionary work. But as we sat down in the park that day and talked for seven hours, as you know if you've read my book, Passion and Purity, he said to me right up front, he said, I'm not asking you to marry me, and I'm not even asking you to wait for me. You belong to God. I have no claims over you, so I am not going to lay a finger on you. And we sat, according to my mother's rule that she'd given me when I was about 13 years old, arm's length apart. We were sitting on the grass facing each other. It's a good principle, but it's not my idea. It's God's idea. No physical contact. And God has made it crystal clear in his word that sexual activity is limited exclusively to the marriage bed. There is no other place for that. I would be indeed extremely naive if I imagined that I was talking to a bunch of virgins here. You and God know whether you have given away your virginity. You don't lose it. You give it away. If I could shout from the housetops, preserve it. Don't give it to the wrong person. Who is the right person? Only the person to whom you are married, not the person who you think you are going to marry. Those are God's rules. Why? In order to make us miserable? No. You people who have given away your virginity, you know that you didn't find the joy. You didn't find the fulfillment that you hoped for. And you know how miserable you felt afterwards and how you wish with all your heart that you had not done that. But I'm here also to remind you that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. All of it. If you're in a relationship right now where you are crossing the lines, would you be willing to cut it out? To just quit? To tell that person it's going to be hands off, it's going to be clothes on, and we're going to stay out of bed? What else does God say? If you have no gift of self-control, he says to the young men, marry. To the young unmarried women, remain as you are. Don't try to get married. Aim to be holy in body and spirit. And to Timothy, he said, treat the younger women as sisters and no more. Women were made to be helpers, adapters, to serve in humbler ways. And virginity clearly is a renunciation, as is marriage. Back to that first commandment that Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself. The world tells you you have rights to yourself. It is your body. You can do anything you want with it. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Do you want to be his disciple? Give up your right to yourself. Then the second thing is suffering. He says, take up the cross. And that is going to be suffering. And if you fall in love with someone, as I have experienced, there is deep suffering beginning then for perhaps a very long time, as it was in the experience of Jim Elliott and me. We were deeply in love, but we had absolutely no warrant to touch each other or to take each other in any way because I thought I was going to Africa, Jim was definitely going to South America, and we had no way of knowing whether God was ever going to bring us together again. 
It was five and a half years before he did. I learned quite a bit about what the taking up of the cross means. Saying what Jesus said in Gethsemane before he went to the cross, not my will, but thine be done. And the third condition of discipleship is follow. And that means obedience, daily, humble, faithful obedience. Give up your right to yourself, take up the cross, and follow. I know for many of you men, and I was just talking to a couple of them out here in between the two talks, one of them said, you know, it's a very complicated business. And it does seem that way, doesn't it? But I just am here to say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It doesn't make any difference to him whether it's England before the bicycle was invented or whether it's Texas, of all places in the world, where things certainly can get complicated. And I know you do everything big down here. Um, my friend who came with us, she's our, one of our assistants, and we brought her with us on this trip. She'd never been in a plane. She'd never been in uh, never been in Texas, of course, and we were trying to discuss the differences between New England and Texas. Well, they are many, but one of the things that's very obvious is that you do everything big here, and she'd never seen a church like this. I've never seen a church like this in New England, but the Lord has given us such clear instructions. He will guide us. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Those are promises, absolute promises on which we can count. How much praying are you men doing? You're looking over this great sea of gorgeous women, and I don't know any place in the whole world where there are more beautiful women than in Texas. I don't know why that is, but I noticed that the very first time I came to Dallas, which was back in 1948, and I went into, da into Neiman Marcus. I'd heard about that famous store, and I learned then that all the, wait all the sales ladies in Neiman Marcus back in those days had to be five feet ten, and they all had to wear black or navy, and they were the most glamorous women I'd ever seen in my life. So you men here, you have this great sea of beautiful women to look at. How in the world are you going to narrow it down? Through prayer. Of course. What do you expect? And what do you think God's going to do? Give you handwriting on the wall? Or a star of Bethlehem? Or an audible voice? You have to make a choice. How long is it going to take you? My father got married. He was 22. When my grandfather got married, he graduated from college, got a job, and got married all in the same year. He was 21. When I went to college, most of the men in the college were pretty much decided who they were going to marry by the time they graduated. What has happened? Well, I think the devil has a lot to do with confusion, and he's going to do everything he can to confuse us and to steer us away from God's word. 
and my husband or somebody walked off with the book that I was going to read a chapter out of. I don't know where he is now, but um, if somebody can find him for me, tell him I would appreciate it if he could bring Quest for Love up here onto the platform. <laughs> Thank you. It is, as I told you, it's a collection of stories of the wonderful ways in which God does know how to bring men and women together. And I just wanted to read you one little vignette about a man, a man named George Mueller. And while we're waiting for that story, let me tell you, thank you so much, uh, another story. A man by the name of Charles Alexander was the song leader for a very famous evangelist named R.A. Tari back in the 19th century. And this man, Charles Alexander, had a, drawn up a list of what he was looking for in a wife. He was traveling constantly and for seven years, he was never in one place very long in order to have an opportunity to meet any women. But finally, after seven years, he began to get quite desperate because by that time he was about 27 or 28 years old, which was very old for a man to be thinking about getting married in those days. And so he got down on his knees and he prayed and he committed his list of what he was determined that he had to have in a wife to God. And he said, Lord, I'll take your choice. I surrender my ideas of what I need. You know better than I do what I need. Please lead me to the right woman. And it wasn't very long after that that he was in a campaign in London with R.A. Tari, and a lady, a very lovely young lady, came up onto the platform and gave a short testimony. And it seemed to him that the Lord said to him, there she is. He didn't know who she was, but during that week, he was invited to spend his rest day with a very wealthy lady in a beautiful home nearby. And when he got there, he asked this lady if she knew that other lady who had been on the platform that evening. And she said, yes, she's my daughter. And he said, would you be willing to introduce me to her? She did. He took the daughter out for dinner and he said, will you marry me? Now that just seems ridiculous, doesn't it? It seems absolutely impossible. Because you have to know somebody, don't you? You have to find out everything they think about everything in the world. And you guys have no business asking women a whole lot of questions that you ask them. And you girls, when they ask you these inappropriate questions, all you have to do is smile sweetly and say, why do you ask? You don't need to know much of anything except this is a godly woman, this is a Christian woman, and God has put this woman in my pathway. Well, the end of that story is she said in five minutes we were on our knees and it was all settled. God's not going to do that necessarily for you exactly that way, but you know, he might. He just might. And the story that I wanted to refer to, and I did have a marker, marker in that place, but I think I can find it, is the story of George Mueller, a man very famous because he established many orphanages all over England, and they were provided for by prayer. He had no money, but God taught that man what it means to pray and to trust God. So he trusted God for the thousands of orphans that God gave him. And he also trusted God to give him the right wife. And at her funeral, he preached a sermon with three points. 
Number one, the Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. Number two, he was good and did good in so long leaving her to me. Number three, he was good and did good in taking her from me. In giving her to me, I own the hand of God. And he tells how when he was preaching in Devonshire, he was given a card containing the address of a well-known Christian lady. And he called on her, carried the card in his pocket, and this Christian lady asked him to preach in a certain room which she had fitted up in that little village near Exeter. He accepted the invitation, and she gave him the address of a Mr. Hake, a Christian brother who had an infant boarding school in order that he could stay with Mr. Hake. To this place I went at the appointed time. Just notice all these little things which seem very insignificant. This lady gave him the card. He went and stayed with Mr. Hake and Miss Groves happened to be there. This occasion led to others. Thus I went, week after week, to Exeter, each time staying in that house. All this time my purpose had been not to marry at all, but to remain free for traveling about in the service of the gospel. But after some months I saw for many reasons that it was better for me as a young pastor, under 25 years of age, to be married. I think it's still better for you as a young man under 25 years of age to be married. Maybe you're not under 25 in this group. But I really don't think that God wants you to wait until you're 30 or 40 or 45 or 60. The question now was, to whom shall I be united? A very legitimate question. We're talking about a man of faith here. Miss Groves came before my mind. What does that mean? So simple. Miss Groves came before my mind. But the prayerful conflict was long before I came to a decision, for I could not bear the thought that I would take away from Mr. Hake, his valued helper. Apparently Miss Groves was his secretary or something. And Mrs. Hake was continuing still unable to take that responsibility. But he says, I prayed again and again. At last this decided me. I had reason to believe that I had begotten an affection in the heart of Miss Groves for me, and that therefore I ought to make a proposal of marriage to her. I ought to make a proposal of marriage, however unkindly I might appear to act to my dear friend and brother, Mr. Hake, and to ask God to give him a suitable helper to Miss Groves, to succeed Miss Groves. On August 15, 1830, I therefore wrote to her, proposing to her to become my wife. And on August 19th, when I went over as usual to Exeter to preach, she accepted me. And the first thing we did after I was accepted was to fall on our knees and to ask the blessing of the Lord on our intended union. Have you got the courage to trust God that way? Will you give up your list of qualifications that you're going to insist upon? And I can just imagine that one, of, one or two of you might say to me, well, yes, I've got my list and I've seen 20 of them that fits the list. How am I supposed to narrow it down? Well, of course, Elizabeth Elliot is not going to be able to answer your question, but God is. God knows how to lead an honest, consecrated man to the right woman at the right time. And God knows how to keep a woman in peace. Today, you are single. 
you would not be in this room this morning, I presume, unless you were single. There might be a few married folks here that just are curious about what I might say. But this is your portion, singleness, right now. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow does not belong to you. I find it the most calming, simplifying principle in the spiritual life that I only have this one day. And when we start worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow, we are being disobedient to God. Jesus said, don't worry about anything, whatever. Worry is disobedience. But we have this day, and Psalm 16.5 says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. And if you are single today, that is an assigned portion. Be at peace, you women. You are single. God wants you to glorify him as a single woman. And my life has been greatly blessed by some of the single women who have never married. I think of Amy Carmichael. She believed when she was, before she was 20 years old that God was, not, was keeping her single and would always keep her single. I believe she had at least three proposals. But she ended up doing a work in India that she could not possibly have done had she been married. God has his own plan for every one of you. I meet so many single women who are so bitter because God has not given them a husband. Eve determined that God was trying to cheat her of the one thing that would make her happy. And Eve committed the very first sin and brought her husband into it. And of course, Adam wimped out. Instead of taking the initiative when she suggested that they should eat that forbidden fruit, he just said, well, if that's what the little lady wants, that's what we'll do. And so we've been in a mess ever since, haven't we? But Eve was determined that God was trying to cheat her of the one thing which the devil told her she could have. And that is the attitude that I find in so many single women. God is cheating me of the one thing that would make me happy. And of course, you think that marriage is the one thing that would make you happy. I've got news for you, ladies. I get a lot of letters from my radio listeners, and I get an awful lot of letters from bitter single women who are convinced that they would be happy if they were married. And I get more letters from married women who wish they were not married. Psalm 16.5 says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup and have made my lot secure. Psalm 84.11 says, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Gentlemen, God is not going to withhold from you the privilege of being a husband and a father if that is his will for you. And certainly, there is no question that it is the will of God for most men to be married. Are you a real man? Are you a true man? Are you a man of God? Are you a man of faith? Do you believe that God can put his finger on the right lady at the right time? I know he can. Will you trust him? We are to accept our portion for today. God can change it by tomorrow. We are to surrender our right to ourselves, our desires, our will, 
Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to thee to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. And work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. Now that's a prayer that was written by an 18-year-old girl by the name of Betty Scott. I found that prayer when I was about 12 years old, and I copied that into the back of my Bible. It has been a prayer of my life. I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. Will you do that? Will you earnestly and honestly seek the face of God about his will for you? The surrender of our desire. As Charles Alexander discovered, God gave him exactly the right wife, although she did not fit his list that he'd written earlier. And I think I made a list when I was about 16 years old of exactly what I had to have in husband. Well, Jim Elliott didn't quite fit that list. He was 5'10", I'm 5'9". I was hoping for a husband as tall as my father, who was 6 feet 3. When Jim Elliott had been thinking about getting married, he had a long list of exactly what he needed. Well, it wasn't so long. He had to have a very outgoing, cheerful sort of girl. She had to be short. She had to be athletic. She had to have dark hair and dark eyes. He got none of those when he got me. Couldn't have been further from the truth. I have not one atom of being athletic in my makeup. Lars would tell you that he's worked very hard over our nearly 20 years of marriage to get me to be more outgoing. I'm not by nature outgoing. I had blonde hair and blue eyes. So there we are. God very likely gives a very different choice because he knows better than we do what we need. The conduct of single people. Are you primarily preoccupied with finding the right person as fast as possible? Or are you here Sunday after Sunday to be a servant, to offer yourself to Jesus Christ for whatever he wants you to do? Servanthood is necessary. Psalm 58.10 is a great passage which I always like to use when I have an opportunity to speak to singles because they are tempted to feel so sorry for themselves and to be so one thing oriented. It says in, in Isaiah 58.10, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of, of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. I have visited good many singles groups, and sometimes I feel a little bit dismayed to discover that they are very much 
preoccupied with self rather than with reaching out. And of course, I'm not in any way accusing this group of being like that because I know nothing about what your activities are. And it may be very, it may be that you understand very well this basic spiritual principle that we are meant to pour ourselves out. We are not meant to be preoccupied with myself, my desires, my self-esteem, my needs. It's an amazing transfer of our will when we start pouring ourselves out for someone else. We have a friend whose husband was unfaithful to her, and of course she was absolutely devastated, and the family was destroyed, and the church was destroyed. He had been a pastor. And the church was wonderfully uh, sympathetic and helpful to her when this man went off with someone else. But at the end of about a year, during that year, my husband and I had done what we could to try to comfort her and help her in every way that she needed. She had two children. Her husband had closed out the bank account. She was destitute. And we did what we could to help her. But toward the end of the, after the, about a year had passed, she called me one day in tears. And she said, Elizabeth, she said, the church is just not doing all these things for me anymore, and I'm just so lonely, and I just feel, I just don't know, nobody seems to remember that I'm here, and we're just having a very hard time. And, well, she was just in, in total misery. And I said, well, you know, the church has been wonderful to you. They did what they could. But I said, it's your turn now to start doing something for somebody else. Well, how in the world can I do something for somebody else when I'm still in such grief myself? I gave her this passage. If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like noonday, and the Lord will guide you and will satisfy your needs. It's the principle of exchange. My life for yours, and that is the principle of the cross. And I want always to lift high the cross of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Are you living a crucified life? Do you really believe that the will of God for you will be peace and joy and fulfillment as opposed to your own will? I have another suggestion. There are older people in your church, I trust, why not go to an older man, you gentlemen? Ask him to pray with you and for you. Go to an older woman, you women, and ask God to pray with you and for you about this matter. But why not go to older couples? The story of my own parents was that my father met my mother because a wealthy lady made a practice of inviting younger people to her home in order that they might meet each other. And this was a safe place in which young people were able to meet. And my father saw, sitting across the table from him at this lady's house, a lady by the name of Catherine. 
And he made up his mind that he was going to pursue that lady. And he did. Some months later, when I say he did, I don't think he made any particular move in her direction, but he kept her in mind and he began to pray about her. And a few months later, that same lady invited him to come to Maine to her summer place where she was going to have what they used to call house parties. And she was inviting young people to come for the weekend. My father was one of the early arrivals, and he was standing on the dock with this hostess when the boat came in bringing another group. And as he saw this same lady, Catherine, come down the gangplank, he said to himself, that is the lady I'm going to marry. That was a Friday, I believe. On Saturday, he asked my mother to go for a walk with him. And she said, sure, she would love to go for a walk. And so she gathered everybody in the house party together, and they all went for a walk. <laughs> and the next day was Sunday, and my father, in desperation, said, uh, may I take you to church this morning? And she said, yes. She said, we're all going to church. So everybody went to church together. In desperation that afternoon, my father had to leave on Monday because he was a counselor in a boys' camp. He said to my mother, uh, may I take you to church alone? And she thought, what is it with this guy? I mean, she had absolutely no inkling that he was interested in her, particularly. But for some reason, she consented. And on the way home from church, he said, will you marry me? Now, that does sound ridiculous to you. And you just think, there is no way in the world that you can know everything you need to know about a woman. What do you need to know? She was beautiful. She was a Christian. He met her in a Christian home. The Lord had seen to it that he saw her twice. You think you've got to know this woman for 25 years or for two years and sit and talk and share intimately? intimately? <laughs> and you ask all kinds of questions that you don't have any business asking. And you, th you think you've got to fit your your two opposite personalities together somehow. You know, the devil has really confused all of us. We do not need to know those things. And if you think you know them after four or five years of going together or dating or whatever, you got some big surprises and take it from me. I had two years to observe the lodger in my house named Lars Grin, two whole years. The day after we were married, I began to realize that I didn't know this man, not half as well as I thought I did. So you can't possibly know. But God knows. God knows the person that will fit your needs. And God knows how to bring that person to you. So I strongly recommend you, recommend that you listen to any matchmakers that there are in this church. People say, oh, come on, matchmaking? You're not going to tell me we've got to get matchmakers. Why not? It has always been done in all the world throughout practically all of human history. Marriages have been arranged by other people. Now, I'm not talking about arranged marriages in the very strict sense that they do in India and China and Africa necessarily. But it does seem perfectly logical to me that older men and women have more sense than you have. They are married. They have been through this. And very likely, they have some good advice that they might give you. 
And as in the case of Mrs. Haynes, the lady that invited my mother and father for dinner, she had decided that this was a fine, young Christian man. He was a very shy man. My father was an extremely shy man. He only had one eye. He had a glass eye because of childhood disobedience. He had disobeyed his father, and instead of not having firecrackers, he had gone out and gotten some dynamite caps for July 4th and lost an eye as a result. You can be sure we heard that story many times. Disobedience. But because of his glass eye, and he was very tall and very skinny and very shy, he just was sure that there wasn't a woman in the world that would ever want to marry a man with a glass eye. But God knows how to bring the right man together with the right woman. It takes prayer. It takes what Abraham's servant did. He prayed silently, and he watched quietly. Charles Alexander prayed and that day on the platform, he watched, and he saw a godly woman. And that was the woman that God brought him together with. Listen to the advice of older people. And I wish I had a chance today to speak to the older men and women in this church to say, please help these young people. They desperately need it. And if they have a suggestion for you, take it very seriously and take it to the Lord in prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, and the stories, the painful stories that come to me over this whole seemingly naughty, impossible matter of finding the right mate. They break my heart. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Do you trust him? Do you believe that he will help you? Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. May God give you gentlemen the courage. May God give you women a quiet and gentle spirit and a modest dress and action. And I would love to hear a year from now, this group has been cut in half, at least, because half of you have gotten married. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.